I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. Not really sure what I believe anymore, and I am okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff. I thought about emailing Zach about wearing matching yoga pants to this interview, and I'm a committed Christian. Okay, I have... I'm not going to start the music just yet. Every single episode up until last week, you said you're still an evangelical. And I've been trying to get you to not be one. <laughs> and then last week, you said committed Christian. Is this a just sleight of uh -oh. hand? Or is, has something changed? I deconstructed a label. Wow. Backslider. <laughs> really? Are, hey, can we officially announce? Are you no longer an evangelical? I, I do not call myself an evangelical anymore. Whoa! Committed Christian. Whoa, this may be the final episode of the show. Uh, uh oh. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Holy shit. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity, welcoming you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we are honored to have on the podcast an X or Twitter legend. You can even order his tweets on a T-shirt if you want to on his website. Uh, he is the host of the podcast, A People's Theology, and also the Black Sheep podcast from HM Magazine. He is also a YouTuber, videos on Christianity, theology, and cultural issues, and most of them are actually under 10 minutes. So you can check those out on YouTube. Mason Menega is here with us. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, and I'm doing way better since I heard that Joy Electric kind of intro music. That's that's wonderful. That's all that remembers Joy Electric. <laughs> That's it's interesting yeah. that you say that because I so I, I made that and like about a year ago, a, a buddy of mine who he was in the band Roadside Monument asked me oh, to yeah. to put together some chiptoony stuff for a podcast he was doing that Ronnie from Joy Electric did the theme music for. So I did like the <laughs> the interstitials or whatever you call it. That's funny. That's that. great. Well, so I'm glad I, I picked up on that then. And and I can't say I'm an expert on Joy Electric, but I am now affiliated, I suppose, uh, with them. So yeah, I thought that was kind of hey, you can you can be added to his you know his uh, Wikipedia bio, right? Yeah, I may or may not have edited that edited that already. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Mason, you have um, definitely shared your story with evangelicalism out there in podcast world and YouTube world. Your former faith, through... Dave. Uh, well, yeah, it's right. It's it's a label, but we can maybe we'll do a Patreon episode about that. Um, but yeah, our, our you, zero you shared Mason here. <laughs> <laughs> um, through your various channels, you've talked about uh, your story with evangelicalism. Can you do so for us and our audience? Just uh, in brief, what's what's your story and journey with the faith? Yeah, so I grew up in what I consider prototypical evangelicalism in the 2000s. I, I grew up in South Dakota, which a lot of people don't seem to know a lot about South Dakota. They think of it just, you know, North Dakota and South Dakota are the same state. 
They don't realize that right. at one point they became two states. Uh, yeah. But I, I grew up in South Dakota, and uh, yeah, I it, very prototypical evangelicalism. The first songs I ever knew growing up was were were, were uh, Veggie Tale type of songs. You know, like "Where's My Hairbrush" and "Pirates Who Don't Do Anything." Nice. So those were the you know that was what I grew up in. Eventually had my John Piper phase when I was in like middle school or high school, kind of in my apologetics phase during that time as well. Grew up in youth group culture. I actually literally grew up a block away from my from my like youth group in, in church. And so even like in the summers or at really any point of the year, if I like wanted to just like go hang out somewhere, like that was the place to go hang out you know, hang out with my youth pastors and, you know, play some ping pong or whatever. And so that that was just like what I did, you know, I was, I was like the prototypical youth group kid. Like, you know, oftentimes like when, when I, often when I think about myself of like during that time, I, I think about like from the evangelical perspective, like what is the ideal youth group kid? Like what, what is the person that they would have wanted the most to maybe eventually not, not, groom but like you know grow into the like eventually you know go to a christian college go to seminary become like a mega church pastor that kind of thing i was that kid i that's who i was i was the kid that just showed up every single week to youth group i was charismatic enough but like also i don't know compassionate enough or whatever like i, I was easy going enough where i was just i was all the things that they would have wanted and my faith completely changed uh towards the end of high school, I started having some doubts and questions around my faith about politics and also about purity culture. You know, it's hard being a 17 year old boy and being like, wait, uh, I've never kissed a girl before. <laughs> that was like, it was a hard thing for me to like navigate of like, what, what does that mean for me to, uh, be a person that like has these hormones going through my body and not being able to do anything about it? You know, like all my peers in my high school were, making out and going to parties and doing all the things. And in part of, part of my journey, I'm, I'm sort of grateful that I didn't like get too involved in any of that. But, but part of me is like, I, I just like felt so kind of, I felt like a rookie when I was like going into my mid twenties kind of thing. And so I just, I just felt so behind the eight ball and a lot of that. Uh, and so I'm not grateful in that way, but uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of doubts about that. I had doubts about like just around, um, politics and Christianity. And so, yeah, I remember like I went through my libertarian phase at one point where I was like, yeah, gay people are going to hell, but like, who is, who, who is the government to say that they can't get married? You know, I kind of went through that phase kind of thing. So yeah, Did I, you like I just Paul? started having some doubts. So, um, and then when I went to college, I, and I went to a very like conservative Christian evangelical college, but it just so happened that the religion department that I was in, uh, what and I was a youth ministry major, so I was in the religion department. That department happened to be pretty liberal or moderate. I would I, like I would think of it now as pretty moderate. At the time, I thought it was very liberal. And uh, yeah, the first uh, class I ever took in college was a youth ministry class, and my professor had us read this book called Postmodern Youth Ministry. And I remember thinking to myself, I know I'm not supposed to like the word postmodern, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was really confused about the fact that this postmodern word was getting connected to this youth ministry term, which I was like, oh, I'm all about youth ministry. So I was really confused by that, but it was a it was actual class I had to take to pass college. So I ended up reading the book and realized really quickly, wow, the author in this book is asking very similar questions to what I've been asking for 
a few years now. Oh, and at the point at that point, I thought I was the only person in the world, the only Christian in the world that was having questions about their faith in this way. I had quite seriously never knew of any other Christians in the world that had doubts and questions about their faith in the way that I was having. So I really thought I was the only one. And then I read this author that wrote wrote postmodern youth ministry. And I was like, oh, there's at least one other Christian in the world that has these same kind of questions and doubts. And then I looked up him on YouTube or uh, on uh, on Google and then saw in like the Google related search bar, there was people like Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Boltzweber and Brian McLaren, Rob Bell and all these other people. And I was like, oh, there's like five other Christians like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started following those people on social media and then realized, wow, there's actually thousands and thousands what youth of us they having to. questions about their faith. So that's kind of just in a nutshell. Like I grew up in prototypical evangelicalism and then throughout college, just my faith completely changed. And I ended up going to seminary twice uh, at very progressive seminaries where I learned liberation theology and process theology. And maybe you guys want to talk about that later on, but learned all about that. And here I am now just doing my own thing and and sort of what I often describe, like the work that I do. I I try to be what what Rachel Held Evans was to me. I try to be that to other people in the world. Mm, and so, cool. uh, you know, however you want to think about that, I, I'm all about that. So uh, th that's where I'm at now. That's a That's a good model. That's a good person to want to emulate um i think i think the youth group experience Im imprinted on on us so many different things but i think one of them that doesn't get talked about enough is i think we all have a very messed up understanding of what constitutes a good couch um <laughs> you know like like my Great my point. wife wanted to get like a brand new couch and it's it's so weird that to sit on it and it like doesn't collapse in the center, like a good couch you should sink into. So your knees are very right. like six inches above your hips. Easy. You know, that's right. Um, that's right. I mean, a good youth group couch doesn't, you know how some, like some couches have those little like three inch or four inch legs at the, like on the bottom, mm -hmm. a good youth group couch cuts those right off. <laughs> so yep. you're like really low in that yep. thing. Yep. So you're like, yeah, your knees are coming up to your face almost when you're sitting into that. That's a good youth group couch. Absolutely. I, I, I can only make it work by I sit in the crack between the pillows, which yes. which some people think is insane. It's probably that's easier the, now at your age than get. it was maybe when you were, you know, 30 years ago, right? Maybe maybe. I don't know. Um <laughs> you you mentioned process theology. When when we started doing the show, we we I mentioned this a little bit before we started recording, but but Dave and I were just, you know sharing ideas of what sort of guests we'd like to have on. I wasn't, this was like three years ago. I wasn't following you on Twitter. I didn't know who you were. And and Dave's like, oh yeah, there's this guy, Mason Meniga. He's a process theologian. And that's it. Like that was the description. <laughs> and like, okay, that doesn't really mean anything to me. I, 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 don't, I don't know what that is. Okay, I can Google that. But like, okay, so a guy that we can talk about an area of theology that I know nothing about. Okay, cool. And, you know, within the year, I, I learned that you're uh, the Internet's youth pastor, that, that, that you, are, that you are very funny. And that's something that I appreciate in, in a, a truly uh, core way. I, I, I in, in music, I, I highly value people that are able to bring some element of, of, of humor to, to, to the music that they make whatever um you are known so much on twitter for humor 
you make videos that you're you're very serious about the theology you're working through you 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 add in some jokes and things in there but i'm wondering for for you does being known primarily for jokes bother you um do you think it takes away from the serious intellectual work that you do how how do you like to be thought of in the in, mm. in those that dichotomy who is mason meniga to mason meniga <laughs> yeah there you go good question uh, I wonder if anybody ever asked that on a different podcast. But uh, yeah, I the the humor part of me, it, I feel like it would be a disservice to who I am if I didn't include that a part of my work. And, mm -hmm. and I still remember being in college where you know that's you know I was just telling you all that my faith completely changed at that time, and I thought to myself, you know the the work that. Rachel Held Evans or Brian McLaren, like the stuff that they're doing in the world. I don't know why I have. And at the point, at that point, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know if I'm gifted in that way and the way that they are. But just for some reason, I was like, whatever they're doing, I kind of want to be a part of that. I didn't know what that meant. But when I was 20, 21 years old, I had that inclination almost 10 years ago. Now I had that inclination of, wow, I really want to do what Brian McLaren and Rachel Hull Devins are doing. And the the humor aspect of that didn't come along right away uh, in, in terms of doing public work. I, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. I, I just sort of was like, well, I ended up starting work in this like very progressive church that was sort of associated in that Brian McLaren, Nadia Boltzweber, or Rachel Hull Devins world. So I working there and I was like, well, if, if there's any way for me to like an easy way for me to get into that world, I probably should just like associate like i should just tweet things and also start a podcast so i started doing those things and eventually i kind of find my I found my voice i realized oh wait like this humor thing that i've always been kind of known for like if you ever knew me back in like fourth grade fifth grade and all throughout high school you would have known me as like kind of just like the goofy person i was mm -hmm. always wasn't i wouldn't say i was a class clown but was definitely like if, if I was in the right element, I was the person that loved cracking jokes. And I was just always that person. Even if you ever if you ever go far back enough and, and see like my first like thousand tweets when I was in high school, they were just always me crack like trying to crack a joke. They weren't good, but they it was me trying <laughs> to do that. Right. Right. And so I've always tried to do that. And then I don't know. There was just something about like as I would tweet about like this weird niche culture that I grew up in around evangelicalism, people started to gravitate towards it. And then I you know, started this podcast where at the time I was starting seminary and I was really interested in all this theology stuff. And so I started interviewing all these different people about theology. And so it was just like I was doing this podcast thing. I was doing this funny Twitter thing. And I was like, I, I like both of these things a lot. And then eventually I kind of got this idea of like doing this YouTube channel where I'm like, okay, I, I really like the serious stuff. And, and there probably is an audience of mine that likes that part of me and dislikes the, the Twitter side of me. And there's probably a, a, a people that like my Twitter stuff and are so uninterested in my more serious theology stuff. I'm like, is there a way for me to like kind of combine that? And that's where the YouTube stuff kind of came in where I'm like, well, I'll just kind of combine both of them and see what happens. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't really see either one being a detriment to the other. I mean, maybe to some people that it is. But sure. at the end of the day, I am a nerd. I, I enjoy reading lots of different things. Uh, there's a reason why I ended up getting two master's degrees in seminary. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I like that part of me. 
and I and I can totally do that thing. If if you want me to do the whole nerdy academic stuff, to some degree I can do that. And also I like to be a goofball and like to talk about weird culture stuff that I grew up in. And that's a part of me as well. And, and I don't want to try to separate the two. Like they're just both going to happen. And so I, I'm very appreciative of like where I'm at in my life where I don't have, I don't feel like I need to separate both of them. Maybe there are different audiences of mine that would like me to, but I, I'm just like, this is who I am. And you can take it as a whole package or not, but that, that's who I am. And so I'm sort of unapologetic about the fact that I like this really nerdy academic theology side of me. And I also really like the fact that every now and then I can crack some jokes. I wonder if it, if it was like a process to give yourself permission to be, to, to crack jokes about serious things like in your John mm -hmm. Piper phase was right. that off limits more personally. I, I, I saw Somebody re retweet a, a video of a Christian mom reading uh, a Christian, you know, a Bible story to her like toddlers and, you know, asking them questions like, oh, God made all the great things in the world. What's one of those things? And like the kids are like, but I'm like, OK, let's be serious. We're talking about God here. And I was like, no, come on. Like, why? Why do we have to separate those things? Why? Why can't they? just say butts and be exuberant about that because if you believe that god made people he made butts and butts are funny um so why do you have to s stop your three-year-old and say every time we talk about god we have to be serious we have to be reverent and respectful um so i, I guess i'm i'm wondering if if even that was part of your transition into more of a progressive thinking about theology was giving yourself the permission to be silly about it. So before I answer that question, I've got a very similar story to this, but story yeah. that you just shared. <laughs> uh, so when I started working right out of college at this progressive church and I was a youth pastor, there was uh, at the time, I, I mean, he's probably eight years old now, something like that. But at the time he was like three years old and it was this little, you know, it was a little three-year-old boy. Uh, that was at our church and at the church I was at, it was a very sort of like relaxed atmosphere. You know, you, if you ever go to like a progressive, like Episcopal church, whatever, it's like very high church, you know, it's like smells and bells and all the things. And, mm -hmm. and this church is like, couldn't be more opposite of that. Right. Like we literally had couches in the sanctuary. It was all in a, in a circle, th that kind of thing. So at one point we were transitioning. It was like one of those moments where you like, usually if you're at church or whatever, and you're like, okay, the song finishes and you're like sitting, like sitting down and the pastor's like going up to like, go say a thing or whatever. So there's like this, like 15 seconds of silence or, you know, transition time. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those things, I don't know exactly what it was in between. Maybe it was between a song and somebody about to say something, or maybe it was between something else, but there was like 15 seconds where we're kind of in this moment where we're sitting down and it's all quiet. And that was the expectation of what that was supposed to happen in those 15 seconds. And all of a sudden three-year-old, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but three, the three-year-old boy saw this as a, prime opportunity <laughs> and just yelled out while every i mean the, i mean a literal needle could drop and you could hear it that i mean it was that quiet as we're transitioning to this next thing yeah and he just yells out penis <laughs> <laughs> and i was just like 
<laughs> you know, a lot of people would just be like, you know, his parents or whoever, like just be embarrassed, right? Or yeah, like yeah, other yeah. people might be embarrassed. <laughs> and the the way that the, the kind of the nature of the church I was in was like, oh, like in some weird, funny way, like maybe the spirit <laughs> moved him to say that, you know. Also, he's like a three-year-old boy. Like that's probably the way that spirit moves in three-year-old boys usually. I mean, and so three, great we're just timing. like, oh, that's just what is supposed to happen when it comes to inviting three-year-old boys to be a part of your community is sometimes they're just going to yell out the word penis. That's just what's going to happen. And so we like, we you know, chuckle. It's funny, right? It's, it's a very funny story. And also it's like, that is supposed to be what this is, right? Like we're a community of people of a hundred or so people. And some of those people happen to be three-year-old boys. And that's sometimes what three-year-old boys do. Right. So anyway, it was just like this funny little uh, moment. Anyway, all of that's to say, yes, I, I think to some degree, there has been a part of me where that humor element was always in, uh, like in opposition to the kind of theology and sort of philosophy of the Christianity I had grown up in where everything is supposed to be so serious. And, uh, and I just really got to a point where I was like, I, I can't do this anymore where I have to hold a certain side of me, which is a side where I'm like, I like to be goofy and silly and also hold this side where I'm supposed to be serious at all times. I'm like, why, why can't I just do both? And, and then when you start to realize that like in a lot of humor, it starts to uncover things, right? Like it sort of starts to peel back the layers of uh, what you're making fun of, right? Like that's the point of humor is it peels back these layers of, of what's the object of the humor. And I started realizing the things that I actually find funny are the things that I believe in mm. when I started to peel back those layers. And that was a big moment for me was to realize, oh, the things that I'm finding funny when I watch different comedians on Netflix or whatever, the things that they're making fun of are the things that I believe in. Maybe I should examine those more. And so and, and you know, I would watch like conservative comedians like whoever. And, and I was just like, they're, they're not funny. Why is it that I hold these sort of political and theological values and I don't find those people funny, but all the people who I have an opposition against in terms of theological and political values, I find those people funny. And I start uncovering that a little bit more and realizing, oh, maybe I need to start to examine this a little bit. And so that was that was certainly a part of it was I, I, the humor aspect was something that uncovered part of the, the part of evangelicalism that I was trying to hide for a while. Mm. Or at and least was trying those, to hide from me. There you go. Uh, and taking those threads of um, having some humor, making fun of some Christian rock bands and youth group culture. I've seen a couple videos where you make fun of Skillet quite a bit. Uh, we just had the great uh, Dr. Leah Payne on the show uh, talking about Christian music. I'm trying to and, schedule an interview with her right now. Can't wait. Yeah, you should do it. She's great. She is absolutely amazing. Um, did, I actually did you, did you think... see my sorry? I well, I could. I don't. I don't want to take ahead. up too much time, but she she was re retweeting a bunch. Of my my deep dive into exactly where in Disneyland Carmen got saved, um, that I spent hours researching and was able to present to her on our show last week, and it it was a truly incredible moment. My entire life led up to this, and it all started because if if you have her book, if you've been reading it. There was like one little spot where she noted, right. oh, yeah, Carmen got saved at Disneyland watching Andre Crouch. And I like Disneyland. And so I had to know exactly when and where in Disneyland this occurred and how funny that would be. Um, <laughs> and 
Yeah, I wrote a 20 tweet thread about it. <laughs> there you go. There's a it dissertation is a... waiting I, to be happening. No, no. no. Happen. When you mentioned <laughs> dissertations earlier, I was like, I I would totally use this for a dissertation because ultimately it ended up being the the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, uh, which uh, leads me to my hypothesis that Satan by the Dust was a reenactment of his conversion. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh another Christian performer, this this one a group, Skillet, uh taking those threads of youth ministry, youth group, and your humor. You make fun of Skillet a lot on a couple of videos. I don't think I've ever heard a Skillet, like I can't think of a Skillet song. I might have heard a Skillet song on a Christian compilation CD somewhere, but I just want to ask you, are there any good Skillet songs? Like should I should I listen to a good Skillet song tomorrow? Yeah, I think their early stuff, like if you, I don't think it holds up if you're not into, if you didn't grow up in that time frame. Yeah, if I lack the nostalgia or whatever. Right, like, but but I do think if you do have that nostalgia of that like late '90s, early 2000s sound of alternative metal or whatever, I think some of their stuff kind of holds up to some degree. That early stuff, for example, Savior, which I think was on their like third album if i remember right i don't remember collide i think is what that's on and that might have been 2003 that was kind of the last album i would say that skillet was legitimately like that's pretty interesting and pretty good uh but there's a song called savior where i'm like that's that's heavy that's that's good stuff mm-hmm. a- and i would say that that's a good song uh they also ironically have a cover of a veggie tale song called stand up around that same time maybe 2001 2002 2003 somewhere around there around that time that Clyde came out and it it sounds very similar where it's just like this heavy alternative metal song and I think that VeggieTales cover is awesome and so I think I think there's like some good skillet songs in those early years and then they went into this more Christian nationalism call it post grunge but just this like very generic rock sound and it just got really bad. They're they're probably their most famous song. I'm guessing. I, if I, I mean, I have no idea about Skillo, but I'm I'm guessing it probably is their most famous song on Spotify. It's called Monster. It was the song that I remember, like even the non youth group kids remembering about Skillet. I'm like, okay, that like they have definitely entered into a, another echelon of popularity. If if all the non youth group kids know who this band is, and so you know, just in the same way of like you remember like when meant to live came out and like all of a sudden all the kids that you knew in youth group all of a sudden knew or you know college or whatever knew switchfoot because of meant to live and it's like all right you didn't grow up in the culture i grew up in so that was that (laughs) kind of thing for when skillet came out with monster i'm guessing it's still their most popular stuff but if you listen to that it's like it's just generic it's almost like just a heavier version of imagine dragons and that to me is what their sound has been since then i I mean i could totally be wrong i have honestly no idea what skillet has sounded like for the last 15 years but (laughs) i've just always imagined what they sound like because i haven't been willing to try i just the name has always just sounded so stupid to me it's the moment i heard about them it's a very aesthetically they look like a late '90s new metal band that doesn't rap. Um, that was well, that's like... what they used to look like. Now they look like a, a. I mean, they they literally look like now where it's just like they look like country singers or something. I mean, they just they truly don't look like an alternative band to me. 
Oh, weird. They, and they certainly don't sound like it. They they don't sound like a band that's trying to be edgy. They're just sort of like, oh, well, this is the big sound, Imagine Dragon sound or whatever of rock music. So we're just going to sound like that. <laughs> Dave's Dave's kids recently became fans of Imagine Dragons. And, I had never listened uh, to them before. Imagine to which, Dragons. To which so I told him if he's they're, they're if he's ever listening. seen television commercials, he has heard Imagine Dragons. Yes, um, but <laughs> that's that... I mean that's what I when I think of Skillet now, I think of TV commercials. I could be I mean yeah. maybe they don't have any TV commercials, but that's what their songs sound like to me. I'm <laughs> I'm wondering. So I mean you 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 mentioned metal stuff and heavier stuff. Um, I was never a big metal guy, but I was a punk guy. Um, you you had you had my my old buddy Jeff Betger on your show. Yeah. Um, when when ninety pound wuss was about to do Furnace Fest, he 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 came on here as well. Actually, we talked about about me joining ninety pound wuss to play keys for their live shows to play synth stuff, and ultimately they they came up with a way to do it where they didn't need to have another body. Um, but, uh, I don't know. He, he and I have discussed you're, me you're, playing with music with him. You were worth the $50 a night or whatever <laughs> it was. <laughs> I was like, man, if I could, if I could just get like a ticket, just get the airfare covered. I'll, I'll do the rest just to be able to meet up with, with folks at Furnace Fest or whatever. That'd be cool. Um, so whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering if, if as a teen, if you discovered a punk identity through Christian punk music, or if you got into punk and found the music later because you were a youth youth group kid, yeah. So actually, I think I think the music I was into actually played a really significant factor in my deconstruction, and I wouldn't have known it at the time, certainly, but when I look back at it now, I'm like, oh my god, that that definitely was sort of planting seeds, if you will. Uh, I was I I got into I got into a lot of Christian alternative music probably after you know like ninety pound was you know to me ninety pound was was like a like a nineties band yeah. and I got into all of that kind of music you know I I grew, I was born in ninety four so I didn't really grow up much oh. in the nineties you know I only <laughs> had a few years in the nineties yeah. so I I don't really remember a lot of that nineties music other than what was really popular on the radio my first introduction to any Christian music was Reliant K and Switchfoot mm. and honestly it wasn't because I was at, I wasn't even at the age I was like nine years old when people were still expecting me to probably listen to Veggie Tales I was at an age where I was like I'm like you know I'm not really liking my parents newsboys and michael w smith music like what what is my music but i can listen to my parents would be fine with me listening to because i i was at an age even at that point at eight or nine realizing okay the stuff that i'm listening on the radio or liking on the radio is probably not stuff that i'm supposed to listen to but there's got to be something else out there for me and and so i even at that age realized that 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 was a dynamic i had to play with and then i remember it would have been about 2003, 2004 when Switchfoot came out with Mental Live and Reliant K came out with Mm-hmm and Be My Escape. And he, and seeing those music videos on MTV. And for some reason, I don't remember why it was. Maybe it was a God thing. But there was some reason why those songs stuck to me as this sounds different than 
newfound glory or blink 182 or you know whatever you you name it lincoln park right like at the time those were all really popular there was something about switchfoot and reliant k where i'm like i don't even know what christian alternative music is i had no idea that that existed but there was something about it where i'm like this sounds different and i remember the person who was sort of like watching me that summer she was probably like in she was like in high school so she was probably i don't know 17 or six or seven years older than me i remember asking her also by the way her brother ended up becoming a mega like youth or or a mega church pastor in south dakota but i remember asking her what why do i like why does switchfoot and reliant k why why are they different than blink 182 and reliant i remember literally asking her that question i was eight or nine years old she was like oh because they're christian bands and at that moment i realized oh I don't have to just listen to Newsboys or Michael W. Smith or Audio Adrenaline. There is music out there that is of my age that I can listen to, and it's fine. And so I remember it, this was like the early days of internet stuff, you know, like, well, I get maybe not super early days, but it was like early for me. It was like the first couple of years. You were born the year internet. I got the internet. Yeah, it was like, like the years that, yeah, it was, well, I mean, quite literally. Like, your entire life is was the, first the internet. Year that we so. got the internet. Okay. 2002, maybe 2002. But it okay. was like around those years where it was like the first couple of years that we got the internet in our home. And I remember like going online and YouTube didn't even exist at that time. So I, I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember looking up like Reliant K and Switchfoot and just trying to find like, what, what can I find about these guys? And so I just started looking that up and then finding tooth and nail bands and there used to be this channel on what it was like some sort of christian channel that was sort of like the mtv version or like a christian version of mtv uh called uh jctv and they had the jc stand for (laughs) john cobb um but uh yeah anyway it, it was yeah, like top 10 videos and stuff. And you could go online and vote and watch like a video beforehand to go vote for it. So that's just how I discovered all that music. So that's how I discovered like Under Oath and Me Without You and, you know, all these bands from like Tooth and Nail and that whole world. That's how I discovered any of them was watching these videos. And so that's how I got involved in that world. And to this day, these are some of my favorite bands ever, you know, like Norma Jean and Under Oath and, and Me Without You, like, I just literally had an interview come out with me without you yesterday on my my music podcast. So like, nice. I mean, these are bands that are still to, with me today. And the funny thing about it is, these are bands to me. And I'm I'm I would love to hear other people that grew up in that world, but also are Christian or Christian adjacent. I think there was something about that particular world of like the tooth and nail, solid state, that alternative music world that was connected to the Christian world, Christian music scene where there was something about the punk metal hardcore element of that music where those bands were truly committed to that piece of art and ended up actually sacrificing the Christian industry to to end up like preserving that punk hardcore metal aspect of their music. And so whether it's like Norma Jean or Under Oath, but you see a lot of these bands like come out where they're like, yeah, I'm not really evangelical. We're not Christian anymore or whatever. Like that, that to me seems to be like a signifier of they were so committed to that piece of art that they're willing to sacrifice that like Christian music 
label and they're and sacrifice that part of that industry for themselves just so they can remain committed to that piece of art. And there that's got to be a, like a thing to be written about. Like that that to me there's a massive movement of that. And you see so many other bands like that. And uh it, it, versus, like I think Skillet is actually a great a great example that's like a counter example of that. Where Skillet was an alternative metal band in the 90s and 2000s. And they ended up deciding, no, we're going to remain in the CCM world and remain committed to this industry. And notice how their sound changed from like this alternative, really weird, edgy sound. Have you ever listened to Skillet's first album? It's like the weirdest thing ever. And now where they sound where it's just like any generic like rock band. That to me, like that to me is a defining characteristic of that that dichotomy that bands were experiencing in that time and some bands committed to the art form of it some bands committed to the industry and you you see different pathways based on yeah, one, the, one the of nashvilleification of of, of yeah. bands exactly. is, is 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 real for sure and those you know punk bands that were committed to being punk bands were never going to move to nashville that was that was never going to to be a thing that would happen to them I know I'm sure Dave has a question, but I just wanted to real quick tell you now that I know you were born in 94, I, I want to tell you how I discovered the veggie tales um, because I was born in 82. Um, so toy story came out in 95. I saw right. that blew my mind. I was like, computer animation is a thing that exists. This is yeah, amazing. It was kind of the big first computer animation movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jurassic Park was the first PG-13 movie I ever saw, and that was 93. And so that was the first like believable use of of CGI characters that that was fully enmeshed within the world of the movie. And 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 then, you know, Toy Story being the first feature animated film to, to come out in theaters, it was it was uh, fully CGI. And so I was just so interested in CGI and, and computer animated stuff. And I, my dad took me to the Christian Booksellers Association conference in 1996 that was in Anaheim so that we could go to, to Disneyland in the evening. And uh, we, we talked with Leah about this last week. That's I met Carmen. I met DC Talk. And VeggieTales was in its infancy, I, I, I expect, because I, oh, yeah. just, I found them at a booth and I bought a Bob the Tomato necktie because it was a it was a computer animated character, and I'd never seen something like it was the only thing there for sure. Um, but I was just like, oh my gosh, a computer thing! It's like it's like Toy Story, but it's something else. I, I I'm so into it, so I bought a Bob the Tomato necktie in 1996. Don't know whatever happened to it, but that must have been like. Really, really early. For, I never for really Veggie thought Tales. about that. That Veggie Tales was uh, not to say that they were certainly not the first, but they were very early on in that. Oh commu- yeah, computer animation, and that's probably part of the reason why it it 
like had they just gone like regular animation, it probably wouldn't have gotten as big as it no. Did. It was super novel. I think the fact that it was just it that. was so new. Yeah. In comparison to you know going where you have because I'm guessing VeggieTales started in ninety yeah about ninety five ninety six around the time that Toy Story came out. So it's like yep. this is a brand new technology, and they're adopting it right away. And we that, all know that, that to me, Christian culture, a, we're used to the thing. to the delay of of ten years, five, ten years yep. on on a cultural thing happening in secular right. culture. But they're really onto that. They That's were they were right on the right, about that right at the beginning of that technology. Absolutely. Wow, so I've never was, thought about that before. It was oh yeah, no, it blew my mind. I was like, it. This is incredible that within this world of Christian culture, somebody is making a thing that is at the very forefront of yeah. the merger of technology and artistry and wow. it blew my mind uh so yeah. i'm not super familiar with with veggie tales beyond a few things i've shown my kids but uh when they were really little but that was incredible to me so great yeah. ties can't speak about the show but great ties <laughs> <laughs> good for you phil Vischer and fellow artists um <laughs> Mason, I want to backtrack in the when you were talking about the Christian bands and their faith transitions. You brought up a name, John Cobb, as an aside comment. So this may be a good transition into the serious side of Mason as yeah. someone who is into process theology. John Cobb wrote What is Process Theology and, and among other books. I'm I have a cursory knowledge of process theology. And before the show, or before we started recording. Zach mentioned your dissertation in the show. You were telling us that you wrote on embodiment. So I was wondering if you want to combine those ideas of process theology, embodiment, just in a, a lay person way, like um, how can a listener understand what, what those things are? Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I want to mention about process theology is a, a lot of people ask me, what, what, what is process theology to begin with? So there's two ways, or there, there's sort of two defining characteristics of process theology that I often use. One of which is that process theology focuses on that everything is in relationship with everything. Okay. So whether it's atoms interacting with other atoms, not not uh, a d a m uh, Adam, <laughs> not the not the first human in the world Adam, uh, six thousand years ago, but uh, actual <laughs> like atoms a t o m atoms, and so whether it's atoms like that that are interacting with each other or humans or even human systems like religion interacting with other religions, uh, that uh that that is a defining characteristic. That's a part that that's a fundamental nature of reality is that everything is in relationship together. So that's the first part of process theology. The second thing is that everything, or, or sorry, the future is open to all sorts of different possibilities. Okay. So whether it's uh, a possibility that everything is going to be a fire and brimstone and the whole world is going to go to hell and it's going to burn up and which probably is actually very likely at this point, Climate That's change. a very yeah. real possibility, but everything is in, in in is actually open to possibility. So a lot of us grew up in a more like Calvinist way of understanding the world, where everything that is happening is actually been predetermined by God, and we're basically just living through assimilation. Process theology thinks of it very very differently, where whatever is happening in the world, that is happening in the moment and has not at all been determined by God. And so it's a very free, open future is often how it's described. 
And so those are kind of the defining characteristics of process theology. Everything in the future is open to all sorts of different kinds of possibilities, and everything is in relationship together, okay? So those are the, kind of the two main uh, defining characteristics of process theology. The, 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 the embodiment part of it for me is that, you know, if you ever look at the human body and understand like the way that cells work together, the way that even just if you go even deeper than that, the way that atoms and particles work together, they're all in relationship with each other, right? We get to a point where if you go deep enough, you've got all these particles that are working together. And then if you get enough particles working together, all of a sudden you get these atoms that work together. You get enough of these atoms that work together. All of a sudden, eventually you get to these molecules. These molecules start to work together. And then you get these molecules working together and you get these cells. All of a sudden you get these cells working together and you get enough of those. You get these organs that start to work together. All of a sudden you get these organs working together. And then all of a sudden you get a human body, right? So these, all of these things are in relationship together and none of it is being predetermined, right? Who knows what's going to happen to the human body millions and billions of years from now? You know, earth could be destroyed. We evolve in different ways. What? Who knows what happens, right? But there's so many different possibilities, but all of it is because of relationship. And so uh, when I think about just like spirituality and religion and theology, I want to think through it of these de these defining characteristics. Everything is relationship and everything is open to the future uh, or most things are open to the future. So th that is a really part, a core part of how I think about not only the body, but also theology, religion, spirituality. Before we started the show, I put out on X Twitter asking if anybody wanted to ask Twitter. you. <laughs> yeah, okay, Twitter. Um, asking if anybody wanted to ask you any questions. Uh, so I have a couple. Oh um, boy! Yeah, here we go. So Aaron Green with Reap, past guest on our show. Uh, Hell yeah, asked, I love Aaron. Good friend of why, mine. Why? Why is he such a silly goose? I think we've kind of already covered that. So um, he but... learned to give himself permission to be a silly goose. There you uh, go. I'm a... And and I was a silly goose before. And here's the thing is, Aaron, I'm sure you would never probably ever want to visit my family for a variety of reasons, reasons that are very valid. And also, if you ever met my dad, you would realize why I'm a silly goose. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> nice. And then I'm going the second... to be oh. seeing Aaron next weekend. Looking forward to that. Ah, so jealous. Love it. Yeah. Aaron. Yeah. Uh, the second question from Transvangelical on Twitter. Um, <laughs> what are his feelings about Barbara Manatee? This is perfect with where this conversation has gone. <laughs> wow. I mean, what what could there be said about Barbara Manatee that hasn't already been said about like Dolly Parton, right? Like just so many good characteristics about Barbara Manatee, mostly physical characteristics. But <laughs> mm, love me some good Barbara Manatee. Did she give free books out? Oh, that's all I know about books. Dolly Parton. Dolly it Parton was, gives out free wasn't books. Wasn't just free books. You There's added more to Dolly take Parton. Away than that that? X, or, <laughs> take away that K and put another B in that books. And mm, that's what uh, part of NFT is putting out. I think this is a blue sky conversation, not a Twitter conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> a couple years ago, the internet was, everybody was wishing you a happy birthday. And I was realizing that it was the eighth anniversary of the day I leaked the William Wallace docs that, that got Mark fired and collapsed Mars oh, Hill. Oh, wow. 
and you were, you were in in there, weren't you? Oh, oh, Zach's yeah. The guy. Sorry, listeners get tired of hearing me say. It's this. funny. Sorry. I know, like you know, like I know, you know, Jeff was involved in that world. I know Dustin. Mm -hmm. I'm good friends with Dustin Kensru, so I like I know people that were adjacent to that world, and it's so funny to hear like people that were like, "Oh, I was in in that world." Well, Jeff was not adjacent. <laughs> Jeff, well, yeah, Jeff was Jeff was in it, right? He was one of the most in it people. I mean, he was he he predated me that he started going like right when it started, like '96. I was there 2000 to 2009, um, but that you know that was uh still fairly early like i when i started going it was it was just meeting at the the venue that was used as 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 a all ages music club that jeff booked right and pretty quickly i was volunteering to to work those shows um but yeah um so yeah, so so your your birthday, July 29th. This is going to be the 10th anniversary of it. Uh 2014. That's that's when I released those documents. Your birthday is the is essentially the day that Mars Hill was done. Um so it was my gift to you before I even knew you. Uh pri <laughs> prior birthday. to attending, yeah. <laughs> prior to going to Mars Hill, I'd been mostly at charismatic churches that just weren't really concerned with any sort of intellectual um, approach to faith and any sort of deep understanding of theology. And so when I went there, I just kind of went along with whatever Mark said the Bible said, because it was the first time I'd really seen somebody take an intellectual approach to things. Mm -hmm. And when he said it strongly, it felt like, oh, okay, that's what the Bible says. Nobody really cared to talk about that. They just wanted to like emote um, in, in these charismatic churches I was used to. And, um, uh, you know, he was very emphatic that his interpretation was correct and entreating all of us to make sure that we all had the right understanding, aka okay, his understanding uh, of what the Bible says and means. Um, does having the right doctrine or the right interpretation of scripture matter to you? Like, what what do you think about that? And, and folks that confidently claim they have the right one, I mean, as somebody that I don't, I don't follow the Bible anymore. Like I'm interested when, you know, LGBTQ folks say like, here's the context for the clobber passages. Here's right, why right. we can say that in our interpretation, the Bible is not homophobic. Um, and part of me like wants to like fully accept that interpretation and their understanding. But a big part of me is like, it doesn't matter to my life whether or not it is. And it seems equally likely that the, but you could just say the Bible is homophobic because it was written by homophobic men. Um, that, but if you believe in in God and you're okay with the Bible not being infallible, then you can still say it is homophobic, but God is not. Um, so, how how much how much importance do you place on figuring out the right interpretation of the mm -hmm. Bible? Yeah, so a few points that I have to that. First off, I, I I think that context certainly matters uh, when when we think about these things, right? So you mentioned a little bit about like having some queer Christian friends that are like, well, this is the context of this or whatever. I I think that's important and it's helpful to know. It's helpful to know. So I think that's first off, you can hold that to be true, 
it's important to know these things around context and the you know historical, theological, literary context. That that stuff is important. It's great to know that. Second thing is, I don't think that, and, and I think this is important for all Christians who accept this, is that God is not the person who wrote the Bible, right? That that is such an, a critical piece. You know, I I hear this all the time from conservative Christians that God whether it was through God's self or through a bunch of other people wrote the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that is so important to realize is that's not how that happened. There were a lot of people writing and telling these stories, not having a clue that one day these would be considered like divine authoritative documents. There were a lot of people that were writing in that way. You know, Paul was writing these letters just thinking that, these are just letters to my friends and you know, yeah, you to tweeted the, them the other day, challenge like them and all these, all of like, a sudden, hey, Timothy, boom. what's up? <laughs> yeah. Like he's not. Yeah, exactly. He's not at any point writing these letters thinking these are going to be considered divine authoritative documents in the same way. I would be, if I came back to earth a thousand years from now and realized that my tweets were in the Bible, <laughs> I would just be like, what the hell were you guys thinking? <laughs> These were tweets. These were supposed to be funny. You're supposed to laugh at them. Why are you taking them so seriously? Right? <laughs> the idea of that's tweets, exactly. I'm sure if Paul came back today, I'm sure that's consistent. exactly what he would be thinking, right? <laughs> so I think that's another part uh, to really consider as well is that God was not God. God was not writing these words, whether it was God themselves or God through other people. God was not writing these words. So I think it's another thing to consider. With that said, I still am a Christian partly because of the Bible. I absolutely love the stories, all the things that are in the Bible. There are parts of the Bible where I'm like, I don't agree with that at all. And there are parts of the Bible where I'm like, hell yeah. And that's part of the reason why I'm still interested in the Bible. Partly because whenever you encounter a friend or a loved one, how many people do you love in the, in your life where you're like everything about them is perfect the they're they're even considered like you would think of them divine the people probably closest in your life there's probably parts of them where you're like not I don't like that about you <laughs> I I do my podcast with or I do one of my podcasts with my best friend I can assure you that there are things about my best friend and we've been best friends for 15 years in our lives. I can assure you there are things where I'm like, not about that part of you, dude. And I'm sure he can think about that for me too, right? And I think about the Bible in that way too. I think of the Bible as sort of literally like a living person for me. There are parts of that Bible where I'm like, hell yeah. And there's parts of the Bible where I'm like, what the hell were you thinking? Were you like, was that like, was that when you were like going through your breakup with your ex or like, I mean, just like there's parts of it where I'm like, what the hell? So that's how I think about the Bible is like, it's just another human being essentially for me to be in relationship with parts of it where I'm like, yeah, that's great. And parts of it where I'm like, no, but with every great human being, whether it's your best friend or whoever else in your life, you learn things from them. There's things where you, are like positively learning from them. There's parts of them where you're like negatively learning from them, but there's things you're learning from them and informed by them and shaped by them. 
and transformed by them. And I think about the Bible in that same way for me. There might be parts where I'm like, not into that. There might be parts where I'm like, hell yeah. But either way, I'm transformed by it. And that to me is like why I want to be in relationship with the Bible. I don't necessarily would describe myself as like, I believe in the Bible or whatever. I just, I want to be in relationship with the Bible because I think of the Bible as like this living, active, almost like a person in my life. And I want to be in relationship with it. And I think that's the best way to be transformed by something. I'm I'm wondering if to you that analogy extends to God or if you even believe that God is knowable in, a, in, in the idea of a relationship, God is a thing. I, I think about being being told, you know, at Mars Hill and stuff like that, that essentially the 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 more you seek God, the closer you get to God, the the greater you understand the gap to be between you and God. Basically, the the more you seek God, the more you hate yourself. <laughs> the more the more you see how shitty you are in comparison. Um it, you're you're but you're you're saying like the more the people that you get to know the best, you 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 find things about them that that irk you that that you have issues with you have problems if you if you if you think that 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 god is relational do you find that just like the bible that the more you understand or get to know god you find yourself seeing things about god that bother you so what i would say probably the big difference between what you were learning at mars hill and what i where where i'm at is at a place like Mars Hill, God is the exception of what is going on in the world, right? So mm -hmm. God is the great exception of God is all loving, all good, all powerful, and the, all, and the world is basically the opposite of all of that, right? In process theology, God is not the exception, but the exemplification, okay? So God mm -hmm. is the great exemplification of what is all good. What is all loving? What is not necessarily all powerful because process, process, but is powerful <laughs> in a persuasive way, right? So when when we experience something that is good or beautiful or loving, whatever that experience is for you, maybe it's something like a love that you have between you and a partner or you and a friend, or maybe it's something that's all good when when you go on a hike and you see this amazing, beautiful thing or you're, you see this like deer just like jump across this trail and you see this little squirrel run behind and you're like, oh my God, everything is all good. Or you see this wave come crashing in and you're like, oh God, everything is how it's supposed to be. In process theology, God is understood as the exemplification of all of that. God is even more good, all more loving than all of that. Right. So whenever we experience something in the world, God is even more of that. Uh, whenever we experience something good, all loving in the world, God is more of that. And so God is not the exemplification or sorry, God is not the ex exemption of that or exception of that. God is the exemplification of all of that. So that's how I would really understand God and all of that is that God is God is even more than the beautiful sunrise we see in the morning. God is even more than the passionate kiss that we have with a lover. God is more than all of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we definitely have, I, I definitely have some theological differences with you, but I, I'm on board with experiencing this life to the fullest and that those 
those gifts that we have are from God. I think, you know, we use different language. Uh, we rearrange things in our heads maybe a little bit differently, mm -hmm. but, um, but I, but I love the experience of realizing that God is love and that that can be experienced here and now. And there's also a great mystery beyond too, a lot that we can't know. Well, I, I just wanted to ask about, you know, you're, you're fairly open about, you know, sex positivity and, and, embodiment and exploration and I'm, I'm wondering if there was a, a moment where something clicked where you're able to move past purity culture uh has it been a slow process of getting to know yourself listening to your body uh what what has that been like and and how important has it been for you i i i was shut off from my body i think pretty much entirely right. for most of my life and it i've spent the last few years trying to to listen like for the first time and it's it doesn't come easily. Yeah. So I, you know, again, growing up in purity culture, I grew up in in it where it was like very very intense. You know, when you're six years old, you really don't think about purity culture because it's like not the life stage yeah. that you're in. But once you like in the I don't know, eleven, twelve years old or whatever, you start to experience those kind of you know hormones or whatever, and and you start going through like oh wait there there's like a whole thing about me that I'm gonna have to navigate. And I navigated that for probably, I don't know, five, six, maybe seven years and did that pretty intensely in the best way I could, given the purity culture that was in. But once I let that go, honestly, it, it felt like such a cascade for me where it was just like once I let that go and that guilt go. And then it was right around the time that I discovered people like Rachel Hald Evans and Nadia Boltz Weber and all these other people where I just was able to like, oh, I can still be a Christian and not have to navigate that part of me anymore. And so I was able to just literally let it go really quick. And so I often think of my at least in comparison to other like ex-evangelical people that have gone through that process i feel like my experience has been quite different than a lot of other people where even to this day a lot of other ex-evangelical people still are like navigating a lot of shame around mm -hmm. their purity culture journey i just i i was at a pretty early age where i was like about 18 or 19 where i let it go and then i quite literally i just was like fuck that all and let it go. And I have never looked back. And so I, I have never really experienced like much beyond that after that sort of initial, like, let's, let's let that go. There's probably a year or so where I'm like, let's, let's kind of like, let's try to be as close to getting around this, but like not having to like go all the way. Like there, there was part of that maybe for a year, but once, once I like let that go, I let it go. And yeah. And I don't want to like think of my experience as an example or as the way to do it. Uh, everybody's journey is going to be different when it comes to deconstructing purity culture, if you will. Well, we're coming up on the end of the episode here. Mason, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, BCW Hall that we have and, and joining us. It was so great to meet you. Do you want to just tell uh, folks where they can find you on the interwebs? Yeah, so I've got a website, masonmenega.com. You can find it wherever. Uh, I'm I'm one of two Mason Menegas in the world, and the other Mason Menega does not exist on the internet other than, like, I think he's got one Facebook account. So if there's a Mason Menega that you find, it's probably going to be me. So anyway, you can find my stuff there. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, 
Uh, I guess I do have a TikTok, but I'm pretty active on YouTube now. Check out my YouTube. You can also, if for whatever reason, you really like my tweets and you're like, I would like that on my water bottle or I'd like that on my shirt. I got that for you now too. So anyway, you can uh, check that all out. Well, thank you for being here for this historic event of Dave officially declaring that he is no longer an evangelical. I feel I feel so honored. I feel it's, like there's no better way to celebrate it than hanging out with the best heretic out in the in the world, right? It, it took 103 <laughs> episodes to get him there. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, the lure well, of God is strong. <laughs> well, lovely, lovely to meet you. So, Dave. Zach. Which part of the Bebbington quadrilateral quadrilateral do you not ascribe to anymore? <laughs> Give me details. I actually, from what I remember from it's our just first a linguistic episode, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, semantics I still, issue now. Yeah, I still agree. I think with all of the Bebby, Bebbington quadrilateral, the most is that one of the nerdiest phrases ever, by the way? I learned it from you. But uh, <laughs> there you go. That makes sense. But essentially, are you saying there? that the term evangelicalism has been poisoned sufficiently that you don't see a reason in holding on to it anymore. Yeah, I think um, that it doesn't reflect a change in your beliefs so much as a, a not yeah, a not point the, of no return shift in the meaning of the word. Right. Not the theology. Although, I mean, there are some areas like, you know, early on in the show, we did that episode where I don't believe in eternally conscious tormenting hell. Um, you know, I don't, I struggle with the idea of the Bible being inerrant, you know, that there was some of what Mason was talking about that, that resonated, but I do have some disagreements there too. Um, but yeah, I think more or less my theology is the same. I think evangelicalism, it's now, you know, I mean, it was my story, right? Like I, I always understood evangelicalism as an experience of being born again with Jesus. That's that's what I always understood it. And I still like that aspect. I still like that people can have an experience with Jesus in that way. But I think, you know, it's just seeing especially, you know, the past nine or 10 years, just that I think it is more of a cultural and political term now. Um, the theology obviously is in there too. And there's, there's some toxic theology such as Christian nationalism. Um, so it's just more or less like practicality of like, yeah, I don't want to use the label anymore. I mean, we've talked on here about the the valid uh, arguments about the term of Christian nationalism and with how much those ideas are baked into your everyday white evangelicalism. Um, is is it worth using that as a distinguishing term? Um and I think there's validity to that, that evangelical to some extent just includes white Christian nationalism and not wanting to be part of that uh, is reasonable. Which I don't, right. <laughs> I mean, I I know a lot of evangelicals. I, I think there are, there are some that are not Christian nationalists, I would say, in their political views, but um, there's certainly something in the water. I mean, it's a growing movement for sure, as we've chronicled on this show. Um, but yeah, it's just, a, you know, I think it's become sadly so toxic. And I think I held on to it so long just because it was my story. You know, it still is. It still is my story. But um, 
maybe it's long past time to not use the label because I don't want to be associated with those things or say I'm evangelical, but I'm kind of progressive or, but I don't believe these things. So I'll just say I'm a committed Christian. Okay. There you go. It's, it's, it's very interesting. You, you, you'd been really holding on to that term. Uh, all 102 episodes or 101 episodes really because last week right. is when you broke out the yeah, new one you, I, you think i wouldn't notice after christmas break you didn't you didn't you didn't say that you were going to change Maybe it's it. a new year's resolution i just heard you say that well, like, you, hmm. you surprised me with carmen so i surprised you with a label change there we go okay okay well this makes this is very interesting it's very interesting it's a new day New Dawn <laughs> in the world of the Veterans of Culture Wars podcast. Does this mean you're an ex-evangelical? If if you are no longer using, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to use that term because I think it it doesn't always mean this. Again, like labels are so complicated, right? Because people mm-hmm. can be. All, all over the place in their religious, philosophical worldviews, if you will. I think to me it connotates so that someone has left Christianity. So that's my hesitancy to use the term exvangelical. Uh, I I definitely don't think of it exclusively meaning that. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you why don't you take us out? Should we take us out? Okay. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. On Twitter, you can find us. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And you can also go to his website, muzak.bandcamp.com. Find his music, even buy a vinyl record if you want to. You can support our show, please do, on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Pod. And if you want, you can check out my podcast on uh, the Bible. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? We talked a little bit about interpretation tonight. You can check that out if you want. Does the Bible say that wherever fine podcasts are sold? Thanks again for coming on down to the BCW. And remember, as as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%.